I'm your host, Paul Wicker, and this is PPC Podcast, brought to you by AdStage. In this episode, we meet David Yeager. He's the founder and CEO of Global SEM Partners, and we spoke about a bunch of stuff. So how to hire folks at your agency or for your marketing team, the latest in Snapchat with their new API announcement, and this concept called the Revenue Quadrant, which is an approach that you can use to align the revenue goals for your client with uh, the actual metric you use to report back on success and optimize campaigns. We record this podcast most Tuesdays at 10 a.m. out of our AdStage headquarters. You can pick up our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. And if you just want all the news in ad tech, head over to our blog at blog.adstage.io and sign up to get the headlines in your inbox. All right, enjoy the episode. Cool. So we're here with David, and your last name is Jaeger, right? Jaeger. Kind of like Jaegermeister, but an E between the A and the G. <laughs> How many times have you said that in your life? <laughs> Quite a bit. All right. So we're here with David Jaeger, as in Jaegermeister, uh, to talk about PPC, uh, go over this week's uh, headlines in ad tech, uh, and get to know you a little bit more. So thanks for coming on today. My pleasure. Um, so before we get into some of the headlines from this week and we talk about uh, the revenue quadrant approach, uh, which we'll tease folks with, uh, maybe we could start by learning a little bit more about you. So I know you have a long story past in managing campaigns, uh, starting different business units around kind of uh, digital marketing. So uh, why did you end up in marketing and paid marketing and why did you stick around so long? So um, I guess I think like many people, I kind of fell into it. I started off as a failed entrepreneur. My first uh, first startup at, at 19 was a books. It was like a, basically it was like the um, we we I was at school and they I just couldn't find the right book. I kept getting the wrong books online. So I started a process where I would OC I would use the Freedom of Information Act to get all the book information from uh, from the schools, and then I would OCR it into my database and then link back to Amazon for the books. So I started that. Learned a lot of uh, great uh, great lessons. Most of them the ones that you don't want to learn again. And um, yeah, I used that, but as, as I put it, put the word CEO on my card, got me an internship in the paid search, a paid internship in the paid search space, which at the, which at the time was really relatively unknown, and I kind of just took to it. So that's where, and just ended up. So even though I have a broad background in a lot of digital strategy now, the background, the pieces that I've um, really you know find I enjoy is building teams in the paid search space building, you know, just really being able to um, circle it back down from top to the bottom, understanding, like, being able to unify everybody around a business growth goal, um, both executives, non-technical people, as well as, you know, the people at the, you know, your intern at the bottom that's, you know, that that's that's building out the campaigns. So that's kind of my passion point or, you know, what I love doing. And what are, like, some of these teams that you're building? Are you talking about building digital teams at kind of traditional businesses or new agencies? What are these teams? So most of these teams are uh, internal teams either for our agency or for our clients. Um, but really just broad, I think it's, a lot of it is about just the joy of being able to share. I see, you know, just seeing those those people then, move, you know, being able to gain the experience and move on and translate that to other areas. And they usually like digital marketers. You're uh, you're building the I guess team framework to hire digital marketers and train them and move them around and kind of grow a digital marketing unit. Is that the yeah. idea? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Cool. Um, so you've probably built a lot of teams over the years. Do you have any that you're like most proud of? 
Um, I guess I, it's it's great to see. Um, I've been in it for about ten years, uh, crazy enough, and so I, I'm able to see like the trajectory of people, and it's just really. Uh, I think that to me, one of the most gratifying things is not you know what you accomplish internally or how much you know what you what you build or what you build or what you grow, but it's actually seeing the people that you invest in being able to take those skills and move on. So some of those people have um, one one of my ex employees runs at, you know a multi-million dollar affiliate network. Another one got VC funding for, or not VC, but private funding for uh, uh, an automotive, um, an automotive e-com business, built it to over a million dollars a year in revenue within the first year. Um, and it's just really gratifying to see, the, you know, see, to see as they move on, um, you know, as, see my, my ex-employees or the people that I train um, really take those skills and, you know, light, translate those into life skills. And this is kind of a random question, but a lot of times we have folks on who work at agencies or internal marketing teams, and they're trying to hire and retain kind of digital marketers. You got any good tricks uh, in this highly competitive world of trying to find smart, affordable digital marketers for agencies and marketing teams? That's that's definitely a, a big challenge and a big pain point. Um, I think in my old agency, I used to do what I call insourcing, which is basically taking teams and starting literally building from the ground up. So taking college kids, um, vetting for um, one of the one of the one of the um, mottos that really stood out to me is Southwest CEOs, uh, I was reading like I was on a flight there and I was just reading the insert and he said we hire for attitude and train for skill and that's something that just really really hit home, really resonated with, uh, you know, with, with my own personal values um, and so I think a lot of it is really how much you're willing to invest. Also um, really just making out a niche and being able to um, being able to like have clients that other people want to stay with, like I, right now, my hiring policy is actually just the opposite. We hire overqualified people uh, from we just use like a, a world pool rather than a local pool, um, and just because uh, it, it allows us to get oh, people with you know 10, 15 years of experience um, that you know that that really like C level people that that can really guide our clients forward. Uh, and the key to really hiring and retaining those people is uh, th that type of talent is being able to have the cool projects that they're working on and have that vision of growth and being able to even if there's um, you know, really being in for the passion and the love of what you're doing and being able to have I guess call it culture a little bit but call it also like the clients that you choose um, the focuses that you choose to do like some of the stuff around the revenue quadrant was built in conjunction with my teams and now we're working with you know Berkshire Hathaway owned company where uh, you know B2B e-com company that that's actually where we developed some of the the revenue quadrant um, and we've done some just really cool cutting-edge um, analytics um, you know projects to really you know tie the loop together and so you never want to leave that it makes it very hard yeah I mean definitely there's a, a strong parallel in the software world we're trying to attract engineers it's almost the same kind of dichotomy where you try to find young folks who are maybe inexperienced, might not have the skills or right, uh, you know, expertise in the stack that, that you want, but there's something about them that shows they're hungry, they have the right attitude, they're willing to learn, they're curious, et cetera. And then on the flip side, when you get uh, kind of enough folks in that category, you need to go out and hire some of those like overqualified folks who have done this 10 times before and can hopefully help you skip a few mistakes you're gonna make. Um, so a lot of parallels, I think, in that general approach. Yeah, definitely.
Uh, let me ask you one more question about kind of more of that entry level type. Um, for for those agencies out there who are hiring them, I mean, do you have a general understanding of how long you think they're going to stay in the role? Do you try to rotate them in and out of roles? Uh, do you plan on kind of losing them after X amount of time? Any ideas there? Sure. So um, a couple of really closely held hold to the vest pieces that you're teasing out here. So <laughs> great job. <laughs> but uh, the uh, I, I think first off is I always have a, just based off of experience I have a motto don't hire one hire three never never hire what you need hire more than you need and that that gives you the control to find a, to kind of figure out who's a good fit and who's not otherwise you feel hostage I invested four months six months eight months and I can't let this person leave and you just pay more and more and they're just a bad fit and then as soon as they leave and you're in emergency mode and you know you you figured out a solution you realize like oh my goodness like they just weren't a good fit like I just got way more value out of doing this my new way um, and that's a, an experience I've been there done that if you have it if you haven't noticed so I really try try to avoid that in our hiring so don't hire one hire three which means you really have to have a solid solid onboarding and growth process um, what's your training process like what do you you know what's the what and and that's internally as well as to the to the interns to your entry level um, you really need to be able to sell them so when I was at, at uh, my previous agency, it was a little bit more corporate, or you know, fifteen million dollar a year SEO company, SEO internet marketing company. I was doing, um, you know, any, when I was hiring, anywhere between thirty to one hundred fifty thousand dollars a month in billing. Um, we would do that process, but basically, I would sell. Um, I, I would sell each of the people coming in as, look, like if you come work with us, I'm not guaranteeing you that I, I can't give you a growth path, a, a gross revenue goal because we haven't done it yet. But I can tell you that people who stay in the space after five years, you know, somebody's paying you $100,000 a year. So stay with me, get the skills. Um, and if I'm not up to par, I'm almost saying, I wouldn't say this in the interviews or in the thing, but the point is there's a path here, there's a path of growth for you in this industry, and it's true. I mean, you look at, I look at my employees right now, um, anybody with five years of experience, they're, if they're in corporate, they're making an easy six figures. Yeah. Um, so, so the path is there as long as you really have that background experience to be able to sell yourself, to be able to drive the results. Well, thanks for going a little bit deeper into the, that hiring piece than maybe you thought. Um, but we get, you know, tons of agencies that are trying to figure out how to hire. Um, and maybe there is just some reality to there's a limited number of folks that are good at this and you got to pay them a lot of money. So there, there's no secret to find cheap, qualified uh, marketers these days. But uh, Yeah, it's on my agenda, actually, to eventually start an HR recruiting process because I've done it a bunch of times. Um, we're, we're, we're talking to some coding boot camp schools actually to kind of rotate some skills in and get some people up there um, because it's the, the like that coding boot camp mentality um, is very similar to what you're doing in a, a you know, digital marketing internship if you're working with the right type of company because you can get your hands on these seriously real projects um, with crazy experience be able to walk out a year or two years later with some amazing experience again assuming you're not a good fit at the agency that you're at I've right now in my current agency I've started a number of people at ten dollars an hour and they're going way way beyond that they're you know turning into two years in they're they're my you're my senior experience team yeah that's great so we'll look for the uh, the marketing boot camp uh, coming out of uh, global <laughs> SEM sometime yeah definitely
Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about uh, your agency now. So, um, like you said, you're looking for more kind of C-suite type folks. You're doing a lot more strategy. You know, give us the uh, kind of 30 second overview of what you guys do. Yeah, so I mean, tying in with what we'll talk about right now with the online and offline piece is having been in the space for a while, I'm really passionate about just dumbing things down. I think a lot of our industry, we try to make things more complicated, create you know BS metrics, kind of overcomplicate simple solutions when at the end of the day, everybody at some point is looking for a simple input and output. How much should I spend? How much did I make? How much more can I spend? How much more can I make? Where should I spend? Where should I? And just very, very simple. Um, very straightforward, and the, the the real the real magic is built around tying those together. So um, I run a PPC focused agency, though we do a lot of analytics projects as well. Um, we do a lot really in a holistic. I mean, we're we're pivoting a little bit right now to a more holistic role. But the, that media experience where if you're spending, you're able to scale uh, is extremely. That mentality is extremely valuable. Um, so really come with that kind of piece first. In other words, if you can build a paid, uh, you know, if you can run, if you can scale a Facebook campaign, you can scale a Google campaign, um, and the numbers make sense, it's really just a matter of, you know, where's, where your operations limits go, where, you know, where do you hit those limits where it's like, shoot, I can't take more than X amount of orders, X amount of leads a day. Um, and, you know, that's really exciting, and that's what we focus on right now. And the uh, you talked a little bit about maybe doing a bit of a pivot. So is that adding more services? Is that moving into more like content and, and website, or which direction are you pivoting? Yeah, definitely, uh, definitely a, b a bit into um, more holistic role. Whether we're owning, you know, we're, we, we're bringing because we're doing a lot of analytics, we're doing a lot of development work. Since we're doing development work, bringing in, you know, adding in the design element and the, you know, and web design and development is is kind of a no-brainer. Um, and then just from there, adding on just seeing other people really not sell uh, and execute on social well, both paid and free, um, is just an area like for our clients. Uh, I'm noticing that if we, you know, if we don't nudge them to be more holistic, and you know, paid is a channel that they that you know that that's doing really really well for them. Uh, they tend to just stick with what works well, and they don't expand. And because we're not pushing them to, they become a one-legged legged pony. Um, and those types of guys are a liability. As an agency, we want to like if our clients aren't successful, they're not going to be our clients anymore. So that that's a risk um, that we're putting the client at. That's fair. Um, you know, so since AdStage, we integrate with search and social. So Google being Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and it's gives you a pretty unique perspective because our client base, you know, traditionally coming from the Kenshu side and in a somewhat similar background where I worked at a big company that built kind of a digital agency inside, we were all search. It was search, search, search. And then, mm -hmm. you know, social was still doing kind of, it's all about content and likes and shares and, you know, mm -hmm. it's about brand, et cetera. But all the direct yeah. response people were on the search side and all the brand people were on the social side. And then obviously they started kind of mixing teams. And since our platform sometimes is bought for the people managing LinkedIn, which often is very direct response because it's lead mm -hmm. gen, B2B uh, type mm -hmm. stuff. And then at other times yeah. it's people doing kind of Facebook, uh, lead gen or doing Google Bing. So I don't know, I guess moral of the story is we see all these different team makeups and sometimes mm -hmm. it's like, you know, it doesn't cost people to pull, like pull in data from the other network. So somebody might be only doing LinkedIn, but they're like, oh, whatever, I'll connect my Facebook and Google and Bing accounts. And then, the, uh -huh. you know, the Google team is like, hey, what are you doing? And then suddenly it creates this at least conversation between the search and social team to say like, hey, you know, you guys are kind of doing the same exact thing. So maybe you should you know, create a strategy that's a little more holistic than your kind of siloed strategy today. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, it's funny because there's this inter- There's like this. Um, I have a lot of I have a lot of friends, partners in a- in the agency world. Very different skill sets. Um, a lot of the projects that we've done so far is just simply bringing in, and we plan on continuing to do that. Is bringing in all those partners that we do the relationships that we do have, and just kind of throwing, hey, you need an app. Let's pull in, you know, the guy that built the Canva app. And let's throw them at you know let's throw you two together and and let's get make this happen because that's an opportunity and um, definitely uh, you know definitely seeing a lot of that um, there's definitely a conundrum so you see agencies that try to do it all be the virtual CMO and then you see the agencies that take the focus of hey you know this is something that we're really good at we've got processes down we do this over and over again and if we you know we expand um, you know we're going to lose that ability to create you know really rigid and really successful processes. So it's definitely um, an interesting conundrum. I don't think anybody truly has it down yet. Uh, I think the industry is just shifting so quickly. Um, you know, the big agencies don't have it, even if they're buying agencies, just trying to, to mash it all together. Um, there's still a lot of, you know, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of segmentation. Um, just because we're, we're literally, we're, we're, it's different contexts, it's different, it's different mindsets, it's different metrics that you're using, it's the customers in a different mode. When they're on Facebook, when they're on Google, the content has to be different, the way, you know, the, how you change things. So it's, it's interesting. I don't think anybody has it down like super pat. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see which direction. It feels like the, uh, in terms of the in-house teams, they're starting to merge. But to your point, like agencies especially are all over the place in terms of like deep focus or broad knowledge. But I guess we'll find out in the next three or four years or we won't. Like it will continue to be with this, uh, you know. I, I, I truly I, – I think the industry is going um, – my gut – I used to be that of the opinion that specialization is where it's at. Um, and I think that ultimately um, as the education starts really getting out there, as the, as the platforms stop growing at such a rapid rate of innovation – um, you're seeing this in search, where search is kind of like it used to be a channel that really, and still there's a lot of crazy changes. But at the same time, there's a certain amount of, um, you know, it's incremental changes now. Expanded text ads, oh my goodness, big change. Not really. It's you change a couple formats, you do some stuff. Like you literally just have to have, you know, your people just changing stuff. Like it's not rocket science. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, you've got stuff like Gmail ads, which I think are really, really undervalued. And um, the industry, but because it's it's a social product that's coming out of uh, out of Google. So um, yeah, again, I think there's there. It's still at the end of the day, it's still a maturing. Like it's still mature, like more mature than let's say Facebook, which is just you've seen the rate of change the past three years has been amazing. It's been incredible. Yeah, and that's uh, you know you bring up some of the the news from this week, um, kind of plays nicely into this point around Snapchat introducing their API for um, folks to start buying or I should call them Snap, not Snapchat, uh, Snap ads. Um, it seems like this pattern happens where, like you said, you know, uh, Google's been out for a while. It used to have to have extreme domain, domain expertise. It was like this you know, magical thing people were doing with keywords and match types. And, but you know, fast forward five years, and it became you know, a pretty common uh, concept. You had a lot of folks who had that knowledge, and then Facebook came out and kind of repeat. And now, okay, Google, Facebook, I can in-house that pretty easily, but... You know, as a as an in-house marketer, I don't know anything about Snapchat, so maybe I'll throw that to a Snapchat-only agency who's going to do my kind of Snapchat and Instagram. And then after another three years, those things will be automatic, and I'll just stuff them back in the bag. And so maybe there's a cyclical nature that keeps forcing us to get specialists around the new stuff until it, it sinks or swims. And then if it swims, we got to add it into the fold. 
Right. It's funny because you bring around that, hey, um, that percept, like there's that common perception where, hey, you know, AdWords, everybody sells AdWords, everybody knows AdWords. And yet at the same time, you know, I haven't seen a huge increase in, you know, we walk into accounts, we audit them, and it's not like the actual skills have gone up, which is interesting. It's more the perception of, oh, wow, it's not exciting. So, you know, your sales cycle starts going back again anyway, which is interesting. But ultimately, I think, you know, when you're looking at the C-level, um, there's always a break. You you see this in you know the in you know the the older version of agencies, the WPPs, the Omnicoms, all the agencies that they've rolled up, where they also the 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s were you know roaring roaring agent a, agency time, and then the 90s were a time where you've seen a significant amount of advertisers um, you know pull it in house, build you know even the big ones building their own in their own in house agencies to service everything. Um, agencies you know being commoditized, so there's a pricing challenge. So it's definitely um, and because of that also um, centralized, like one of the big values that companies will come to an agency with ultimately is, and I think this will exist in any environment, is some companies will always choose the, hey, we don't have the ability to build the processes, to build the excellence in-house, and so we need somebody to take over that whole, own that whole role. And so I think that that will always exist. It's just that as the industry matures um, and it's less exciting, and becomes more saturated, which, where it ha which is where it has to go. A lot of the challenges that we talk about are from the fact that there just aren't that many people in the space. Meaning, we we need to train, we need to shift a lot of those poor people in uh, in Ohio and Detroit, you know, from you know building cars to managing digital campaigns. Like that's where the money's at. We need to be shifting our our you know our next generation of people in. Um, and as soon as that happens, that by default commoditizes the value of what you're doing. So, a little bit sobering on the agency world. I think from you guys, you guys as a SaaS platform have uh, have definitely have a, a definitely a big advantage, and it's something for uh, you know for agencies to spend a lot more time than they normally do uh, thinking about exits and you know long term. Well, and I think uh, we know where you should start your new marketing boot camp in Detroit or uh, some struggling <laughs> city. Um, well, I want to ask you about the revenue quadrant before we go too too far down the the current news. So. Uh, what is this revenue quadrant approach that you guys use, and how did you come up with it? So, um, yeah, the, the revenue quadrant is a really powerful model. I actually, I'll share with you that we're still finalizing out like deliverables and processes based off of it. But we work with a with a number of B two B e commerce agent uh, companies, large B two B e commerce companies, fifty million, hundred million plus in revenue a year. Um, you know, seeing some nice growth, and the challenge is, is that, um, and the truth is, we work with B2B clients as well. Um, coding bootcamp schools is an example, um, where they have the same challenge, where you get a lead in, you only know the val the true value of that lead, you know, three months, six months later. Um, and then on top of that, trying to pass that data back to the ad platforms, trying to synchronize, well, I got all these leads, what really drove my revenue? Did copy a, ad copy version A or ad copy version B drive me more net profit results? Why are we, you know, CPA and, and you know, cost per conversion and conversion rates and blah, 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 it just doesn't mean anything to me because I'm, I'm looking at, you know, enrolled students. $100,000 product seven months down the line after you know doing a full RFP. So um, a very challenging process uh, that you know the the that's an area where technology still has to just really do a better job of talking to each other. Um, 
but we do we've we've been shifted into a position where we've developed the platforms to to basically have the have your your website and your website analytics talk to your CRM and have the CRM talk back to you. Um, but the revenue quadrant is really a visualization of the customer journey. So um, and again, I'll share with you the the um, uh, I'll share with you and, and uh, the audience if you're okay with it, like a video and a, and a PDF of the revenue quadrant. Uh, after you know uh, for the call, but basically the revenue quadrant. Imagine on the horizontal um, on the horizontal side, you're you're looking at time. So imagine like Google's been evangelizing um, instead of ADA, um, attention, awareness, interest, desire, action. They've been they've been using their moments of truth. They're saying that there's a lot more. It's not big steps from one to the next. There's a lot of impulse, small impulse moments, and that we have to be very very as marketers we have to be very conscious of them. Um, one of the beautiful things that they've done really well is is highlight the ultimate moment of truth when they unbox your product and they start using it. What's their experience because we're in a sharing world as well, so that impact, you know, gets the viral impact, both positive and negative, has a huge impact on your business. So on the horizontal side of the revenue quadrant, um, we're looking at like it's a time. So there's, you know, there's there's your ADA plus you've got UMOT, which is, you know, the that first the final purchase plus the moments in between the purchase and unboxing um, the, the you know the product and sharing. And so you have this process, and your messaging is going to change at every single stage. Meaning, um, if somebody's searching for upper, upper funnel keywords, or you're doing a Facebook ads campaign where somebody doesn't even know they need your your product, right? Your messaging is going to be very, very different than if you if they're searching, you know, your competitor keyword, or they're searching your keyword, or they're searching um, you benefits, or ad, you know, as an example, you know, ad stage versus whatever, or ads, you know, um, or even if they already know, they're looking for a bid management platform. So your messaging has to be timed very, very well. So your marketing messaging has to be different, number one. Number two, your marketing metrics need to align. So if you're doing an upper funnel campaign, you have to be paying more, while if you're doing a lower funnel campaign, um, you've got to either be using, after, again, depending on your sales cycle, you really need to know your sales cycle. And that's, again, that, that really understanding every single step of your customer's buying journey uh, is really, really important to, uh, you know, to, to, again, to aligning your messaging, to aligning your spend, um, and just be and and aligning your reporting as well what you're reporting to the c-suite to your bosses to your partners to your investors to your employees um, and so that's the horizontal side and then the vertical side um, this is more for again as I said you know companies that have multiple products if you have one product and one service and it's one price point it makes your life a lot easier but often as I said we meant we do a lot of work with e-com or BB e-com businesses where you've got these crazy variances in customer buckets so you've got that customer that's going to buy a $5 or $10 product, and then you've got that enterprise client that's looking for a $50,000 product. Or in your case, as an example, it could be a little, you know, it could be a little guy who has a $100 you know, a month AdWords campaign that wants to run it through AdStage versus an enterprise uh, process where, you know, there may be a, there may be a, they may start with a chat, they may start with a, with a, with a lead form. Um, a request, an RFP, or whatever, and then they go through this whole process. So, what are you, you know, a are you tracking? Are you tagging all the parameters? So, if somebody fills in a form, you ha your CRM is pulling in all that lead data. If somebody does a chat, are you pulling in all that lead data to give it, give those channels the appropriate credit? And then, are you pushing back out to each of your ad platforms, um, or at least an internal reporting, what revenue is being driven for each customer segment? So, the vertical, the vertical side of the of the revenue quadrant is their average value 
or you know your customer buckets of different value. So because there are different purchase journeys for different customers. And then if you think about it, right, in a quadrant or in a in a chart, you've got four different um, you've got four different buckets. So figure that your your spot in the middle where the where the line goes down, that's the purchase point, right? So that's when people ultimately buy. But you've got so you've got four buckets of people that you're talking to at any given point. Assuming that you've got more than you know more than one customer bucket. If you've got one customer bucket, your life generally is a lot easier. Um, but if you've got multiple customer buckets, you've got your lower value ones that go through. Let's typically they tend to it's a much shorter sales cycle, much fewer touch points. Don't have to worry about attribution as much as an example. Um, and then you've so you've got your your first your first purchase they haven't yet you know your visitors your prospects etc and then once they purchase you've got your you know post purchase you've got a customer that you're not only executing on from an operation standpoint but they're also a prospect for more services more products from you etc so your bottom level quadrant the your lower right is post part your you know your your lower bucket of customers your your um, on the left is your prospects and your website visitors, etc. And then in your uh, on the top, same thing, but those are your higher value prospects. Um, you've got your you've got your pre your your pre pre-purchase prospects, your website visitors, etc. And then on your right, you've got post-purchase. What are you doing with them? So it gives you a very good um, it gives you a good visual uh, and the ability to really checklist. Like, hey, is our is our messaging in line? Are our performance targets in line? Is our reporting in line for each of these funnels? Like, how do they translate to each other? And yeah. that's what the revenue quadrant is, and it really uh, requires you to do a lot of the technical and analytics work behind it. It's um, so somehow I managed to visualize it correctly. I think um, look, at, we'll put the link in the in the show notes so people can follow it and see the PDF. Um, the thing I like most about it is it forces you to look at your prospects uh, and your kind of paid clients through that same lens. Because what ends up happening very typically is your marketing team is focused on the prospect, and then maybe your um, customer service or customer excellence team is focused on post sale. And then because of that, you have one team using one system and one set of metrics, and you have another team with a different one. And those teams uh, don't really coordinate that well, and you have a kind of handoff process, right? Where sales is like, all right, mm -hmm. I sold it, good luck. Um, and then introducing that concept of either LTV or a very kind of late transaction where you're bringing back, you know, data from a conversion that happened, you know, that happens today actually came from a paid ad campaign from three months ago. So we do a lot of um, EDU. So we have a lot of uh, online universities and customers and agencies that do kind of online universities and their sales cycle is forever, right? It's like, researching schools and then they don't actually count it as revenue till they enroll. So sometimes it's six months later, they call it a conversion and that lives in a totally separate kind of CRM. And most folks just don't connect them. They put two spreadsheets next right. to each other at some point and kind of go like, eh, well, I have some crappy UTM tagging. So I can kind of line that up and say like, sure, that campaign did pretty well six months ago, but forget about getting down to the ad copy level. We're actually informing the optimization with that data. It's more of just a, a general benchmark of is this budget seem to be working in that channel? Yeah, yeah, and so we go crazy um, with dashboarding on that, with integrating CRMs. So a lot of time, like we're doing a really cool project for a client right now, um, kicking out all those BI vendors, always fun. But uh, <laughs> we're basically just just 
just unifying it all. So all the UTM tags get passed back in to into the CRM at the lead status. So it makes it very simple. We optimize, even though it's an, it looks like an e-commerce site, we're actually optimizing to cost per lead. And then on the back end, we're looking at those leads over time, over their life cycle, um, and the sales team is really taking the credit for close. So we actually have zero budget, and that's something we need to work on. We have zero budget right now for moving prospects along the purchase funnel. So it's definitely, we're in a world where it's really weird because you have these, you know, your customer excellence team and your marketing team that, that are sh at this point are sharing credit for maintaining a customer. So customer excellence may be doing the operations side of it, but what are you doing to amplify? Is there any emails in your sequence that are going for asking for referrals or for promoting virally or just upselling to, hey, by the, you know, to on the education side? That typically gets kicked back to the marketing team. They tend to do it, but they do it in a vacuum mm -hmm. without that real, um, if you don't dashboard it, if you don't report, if you're not reporting on it, it ain't being worked on. Like yeah. and that that's the reality. So we're doing a lot of very I'm sure you're doing that as well on your end of just really making sure that that you're tracking everything through the process, grabbing all the UTM parameters, the G click IDs, etc. Um, and then passing that back out manually into the different platforms to take the credit the proper credit. Well and there's um you know, so there's ad stage to the company. We do obviously use our own product to do a lot of our own marketing. Um, but what's funny is how many, just how much work it takes to actually set up. If you want to pass back this data to all five platforms on search and social, mm -hmm. I mean, everybody's got their own pixel and you can pass back revenue, but that means, you know, implementing like multiple quote unquote conversion pixels and everybody's sure. is a little different. And it's, uh, I mean, that alone is a headache and we have a, you know, a three person marketing team. So that alone is, is like a giant job, just making sure when we get a lead <laughs> and they convert, we pass back and our sales cycle is pretty short, 14 day free trial. And then people usually convert or don't. And then we can hit them up in X uh, months. So you're a lucky camper. Yeah. I mean, we would like to bake like LTV in there because we do have clients that, you know, kind of over time, we've had them as clients now for one, two years. They advocate, they've added more users, added more accounts and like raised their uh, the LTV. We don't do a great job passing that back in, but it's, you know, the more of the exception. So I'll tell you to. like those. Right, but the truth is you don't really need to. Like, really, the thing, like, I'm a big believer when you when it comes down to KPIs is keep them simple. Like, what do you need LTV in there for? Like, what are you going to be optimizing your ads for, you know, for AdWords or for Facebook based on LTV? Generally not, right, at least for you. For other, like, for some of our clients, they actually are. We actually are looking at what's AOV, what's ACV, what's LTV um, by ad. Um, and you know we're doing that on a quarterly basis. So I'm a big believer in when you're doing your reporting and when you're doing your optimization, you do it in like a rhythm. So what are your daily tasks? What are your weekly tasks? What are your monthly, quarterly, yearly? And just really map back that, map that back out to your reporting. I mean, if you don't need conversions imported, as you mentioned, like for example, like pixels, cookie pixels. Um, like when we're dealing with longer sales cycles, the cookie pixels generally die. Like you can't actually use a cookie pixel. You're True. losing 70 to 80 percent of your data. So you actually need to do all the hard work on the analytics side. There really is no short way of of getting it done, unfortunately. And that's uh, hopefully on my end. It's something I really want to um, get across the industry and start working with uh, a lot of industry leaders to have CRMs and and um, and ad networks talk to each other because it's ridiculous. It's not like we can't do it. It's just we don't. Nobody does. It's a little fancy feature that unfortunately right now because of the where the edu the, mar the education for the market is nobody's doing it properly yeah well let's actually talk about that uh, 
because you mentioned kicking out some BI tools, and we rolled out a report product a few months ago, and to your maybe chagrin, we also don't connect the CRM data to the ads data, although we've played around with the idea a few times, and everybody's got a different methodology. Um, so the problem is you're going into a whole new business with that, and that's a lot of work, and that's probably why your dev team hasn't gotten there yet, is it's, it's a lot of work, and again, um, the real issue is, um, you know, if the CRMs aren't get collecting, the, aren't doing the data collection to begin with, then, um, then you're not going to have anything to, to connect with. So it's really about raising the awareness and priority. And once the industry knows it, like it's really not that hard. It's literally grabbing anything that's form-based, as an example. Literally just hiding hidden UTM parameters and G-click IDs and any other any other unique cookies within the within the form fields. And that goes to every single you know it should be standard for Facebook for everybody else to open up similar to what Google's done. I'm not happy with everything Google's done, honestly, um, with their G-click ID work and their conversions and kind of they've. They've done a great job of opening up and being ahead of the industry, and then they go and they take it away, mm-hmm. um, just because they're like, "Oh, everybody's taking advantage of converted clicks, and they're not. We're not taking the full." It's like, yeah, there are some advanced marketers that are actually using it properly and layering in conversions, and you just took away functionality. But that being said, I think there should be an industry standard where there, you know, that u- unique parameter should be available to move offline seamlessly and then pulled back online um, at the appropriate time. And we would just do our whole industry a huge, huge favor if we simplified that process. So um, I wouldn't beat up ad stage too much. I mean, you guys are doing, uh, you know, a great, it's it's a lot of dev work. There's no question about it. And I, I just don't think the CRM, like the CRMs aren't talking to the forms on the website really right now. A lot right. of those get passed back. Like I think, you know, there's a lot of easy, simple solutions. So, and you're kicking out all these BI tools and then what are you bringing in? Like your own homegrown or do you have one or two tools you usually use to do all the BI work? We're so um, so. We're basically that's a great question. Um, we're doing a lot of homegrown work simply because it's just easier and cheaper on the client side uh, to just do like you know using some of the high-end tools. They're like I've done more in Google Sheets than some of the high-end you know BI tools have been doing. Not that I wouldn't kick. That, I wouldn't say they're doing, they've done a bad job. They've done great, but we've been able to mimic a lot of that with just some really, really cheap and straightforward Google Sheets and API work. And unfortunately, Google Sheets has its own limitations, which we're hitting right now for some of our larger clients. Um, and you know, even Data Studio also has some of those limitations. I think Microsoft got in the game a little bit late with Power BI and some of their own like reporting work. So I'm really excited to see the industry kind of take these products that, that should be cheap and free and easy to use and really push them out there. Um, but basically, yeah, just really again being using these different tools, scripts to you know do an export from the CRM with a GClick ID, grab the GClick ID, use a, use an AdWords script to upload the GClick ID into the back end, so that we're now using qualified leads instead of registrations. You know, so stuff like that, where um, each of the they're they're really bite bite sized pieces. Um, but if you work with you know if you're working with the BI tool, where there's a lot of work where they haven't let it be super super flexible in and out. Um, they've they've kind of built it for um, the complexities that are often there when you're more corporate. It just adds a lot more cost on the development side. The thing and the thing we found with you know we kind of built like a very simple reporting tool that lets you bring all the ad data in, and now we're playing around with uh, importing custom data, things along those lines. Um, but the thing we found is all these BI tools and kind of reporting tools that aren't kind of with their head isn't in the ad world. It's you know, they're very generic and they're very heavy with all these features you need to kind of figure out to get 
what you need into these BI tools. Yeah. So yeah, most of our clients yeah. use Excel. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that, that's a, we've been using Excel for years um, and kind of moved on to definitely um, should definitely have you guys talk to some of the some of the like the API the API vendors for Excel and Sheets and stuff like that. Um, they're doing roll their own. They're going. They're rolling into da the dashboard world uh, a bit. Um, so guys like um, Next Analytics or um, or Supermetrics, two tools that I'm a huge fan of. Mm -hmm. um, we we build our reporting out there. It saved me like thousands of hours of like manual reporting. So um, yeah, I think we're we're all we're all working there. The industry is getting there. Um, opening, you know, just opening up APIs better, you know, creating some more standardized reporting so people can like, you know, for you, like just basically a client can walk in, they know super simple what's going on, what's the, you know, segmenting CTRs, CPM, CPC, CPA by, you know, by channel, however, you know, however they want to do it. Um, so it, it's definitely getting there. Um, and I think it's just something that the industry, we, we just need to be championing that part more. Because you know it's the non-sexy part of what we do, but it's actually probably the most important. Yeah, reporting on its own is oftentimes like one of the biggest time investment that agencies have, uh, because it's really your chance to communicate all the work you've been doing, which is largely you know behind the scenes, or it's just too, you know, out of the scope of what your client really cares about. So you're not going to kind of walk them through the change log on what you've been doing. Um, yeah. So one or two questions on reporting, then let's let's hit some of the headlines. Um, because we've been talking so much about it, I'm just wondering for your client base, which seems, you know, I'd call it mid-market plus to kind of Fortune 500, or, you know, you're really working in kind of the upper segment of clients. Do you mm -hmm. feel like the reporting has changed that much from what you would do for smaller clients? Is it still monthly performance PDFs, uh, putting the highlights together and shipping it to them every month? Or do you do more kind of like interactive reporting? So we um, personally, for us, where as is, like we went through a process where we did a lot of Excel work, um, we put that now in like a Google Sheet. Uh, we're truthfully, um, hope my clients don't hear this. We're a little bit behind the curve with Data Studio. I'm very excited about like what the Data Studio and as I said, Power BI as well. What they're doing, where you can really roll in both insights and reporting in the same in the same place. Um, I've just hit, seen like when you start customizing, like if you just dump GA data into Data Studio, it's a lot easier. When you start doing custom stuff, it gets a little bit. The no, was, Data Studio is a little basic. I was going to ask. Um, I don't, so yeah. can you go beyond kind of Google products in Data Studio, or it's it's clunky? So we do a lot of connecting Google Sheets through CSV imports. There's like some if you if you're decently sized with decent with Google Sheets. Um, as I said, we use an API vendor for Google Sheets, so we pull in all the ad data, etc. Um, we also do like manual CSV imports, so we'll get a vendor to give us to give us a CSV a CSV dump, and then we're gra we're grabbing that with a with a sheet formula called import range, and then you can take that and dump that into Data Studio. Got it. So there's definitely a lot of potential. I think again, that's we right now we just focus on dashboarding, and then we link to dashboards. So it's not, or we'll 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 you know screenshot it and send the client the results along with you know along with our notes on uh, you know what we're doing. Awesome. Uh, well, appreciate the insight on reporting. Um, let's touch on a few of the stories that happened this week. Uh, the biggest one, perhaps, that everybody's been talking about is Twitter. So I don't know if you have any. Uh, any opinions on whether Twitter is going to exist in a few years? This is the end of Twitter as we know it because this was their last shot to sell, or do you think this is all just uh, ad tech folks, you know, chatting amongst ourselves? 
I think it's a little bit. It's but it's not just ad tech folks, folks. It's investors as well. They're you know they're they're on the market, and it's it's definitely what what investors think has a massive impact on the on the direction of the business. And we see that with ad tech companies. Unfortunately, once you go public, um, that has a massive massive impact on your direction. Even though what the market thinks has zero impact on your users. So you know maybe investors aren't super happy with the stagnating growth in Twitter. It's not the hot thing, but they definitely provide something unique and valuable there. So they're definitely, they're definitely, um, they're definitely here to stay. I wouldn't say it. it's, it's not like you're seeing users abandon it in free fall. They definitely need to um, find, you know, find a little bit better of a voice in their market, and they definitely look like they're doing it. Jack Dorsey is an amazing, amazing, amazing visionary. So I'm sure they'll they'll figure out their product direction. Um, I mean, Twitter ads is pretty. We've we've used it. It's a pretty nice. Um, you know, it's a pretty nice layer. I'm sure you're using it as well. Um, it's a pretty nice layer, especially if you're trying to get like the you know the the target audience that's on Twitter and it's a very engaged market. So I don't think it's going anywhere. Um, it would be it would be fabulous to start seeing. Um, you know, start to like I've I've been really happy to see. Um, you know, Google. Really do a lot of work on bringing everything into their DSP. It would it would be nice to see um, more data just being shared across networks and just paying us you know a premium on the CPMs. Um, so I suspect we'll see something like that out of Twitter at some point, where they're opening their API a little bit more to DSPs, where they can layer on their data. You know, they, you can layer on and buy their their targeting data, which is really powerful across other other vendors and platforms. So I definitely don't think Twitter's um, Twitter's gone. I think they definitely face a challenge because they're they don't have the reach that Facebook does, so they don't get the love that they should. Similar to Bing and, and Google, Bing has a great, great you know network, great, great process. But because it's Google, 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 a lot of companies tend to go Google first, which is a mistake. Right. Um, in the news, it seems like Jack Dorsey kind of has a similar approach to what you just described. In that, you know, the stock shot up 20% when uh, the rumor was announced that Google, Salesforce, and Disney were all looking at a possible acquisition. About a week later, uh, Google and Apple both said, or it was leaked, they said no. And then Salesforce kind of looked like uh, awkwardly, like the only person <laughs> trying to court. Left the, in the dance. Yeah, yeah in the like, dance. Uh, I'm not that interested, but Benioff like, just wouldn't say no. And then their stock dropped, something like 6%. And, and now <laughs> I think... It's officially dead, and then Dorsey put out an email yesterday internally, basically not yeah. even mentioning the sale, just kind of reiterating some of the points you made about, look, Twitter is the new news, uh, and the news is going to be around for a long time. So I mean, that's his spin. Job. I think he needs to execute on that and keep his users engaged. I, I'm, a, I'm an on and off Twitter user, so I've definitely... Um, there's, I think there's a burnout in terms of social networks and whatever, and it's really, really hard to acquire new users and kind of keep, get and keep that voice. So they definitely have their work cut out for them that way. Um, and I think you know, what the market thinks and what the ad tech world thinks I think should be very, very different. And I will say from the marketing perspective, you know, a lot of our clients have their Twitter account connected. I haven't seen much of a change, which is, I guess, the problem. We also see stagnation in marketing spend through the platform, just like they see stagnation in user growth. So certainly marketers are not turning off their Twitter accounts and starting to say, ah, we're probably not going to do Twitter next year. But it, uh, like you said, they're not doing much to kind of attract new users or new marketing budget. 
Right, and I think that would, that would definitely be um, it's, it would be interesting because you're you're in a unique space where you are seeing the internal data spend numbers and um, engagement by platform. Um, I think you you actually have a I think a, an outsized voice of opportunity to really kind of kind of push people again. Where as marketers, we tend if we know one platform, we just kind of stick with it because nobody likes to say, "Oh yeah, I spent like five grand and I didn't really do anything." Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something where it's just it's silly. It's really, it's really, really silly. I say that to myself. I say that to all the rest of us, um, especially if you're in-house and you're just trying to really diversify. And you've got, you, you can't be that specialist. You have to choose platforms. Um, there's definitely a lot of um, lost opportunity that we see, you know, both with with clients as well as people that run in-house. So definitely a huge opportunity. I think it'd be interesting to see. Um, Twitter really pushed their ad product for success just because, you know, CPCs are pretty, they're not cheap, but uh, you, you're getting your LinkedIn audience at a, at a quarter of the price. I mean, uh, can you complain? Right. You know, I'm, I'm, that's not, I'm oversimplifying it, but um, I think it, it's it's definitely an area where, um, you know, they're, they're, they've, um, it's a nascent ad platform and again, hard because it's just yet another tool and nobody wants to log into another platform and that's where you guys come in. So another story from this week in EdTech, eMarketer puts out numbers, which I'm convinced we always already know these numbers, but uh, <laughs> they just convince us that we nothing's changing. Um, so this time, digital audio, so Pandora kind of streaming audio. So they asked a bunch of marketers, are you going to grow your budgets? A lot of them said yes, so they think budgets will grow from 7% this year to about 12% in the next few years. The part that I thought was interesting was if you look at the top of the list, in terms of where they're going to spend their money, it was streaming music and it was podcasts. And way at the bottom was syndicated radio and national news talk radio. So just funny how the digital audio kind of industry has almost completely flipped to follow kind of all other media. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the the real piece, the real not you know story or non-story in that, and something that I think um, you know Pandora, a lot of digital, you know, the podcasting world. Um, and everything else is going to is that the there's a lot of opportunity to really measure and be accountable, and it's just because your old school marketers have been stuck in TV um, and radio for so long. It's just they're comfortable. They can report on it. They can show. They they have their processes. And digital is just kind of even though you have a lot more detail, um, in some ways you don't. It's just it's it's different. So they're scared to change. So I think there's definitely, um, I, I would say along with, you know, Pandora, et cetera, I think that the e-marketer data really comes from your fortunate, your, your, um, you know, your enterprise level companies who are used to radio, et cetera. And they're already, um, at this point, because so many people are listening online, um, the reps have been forced to sell digital. So digital is just going to continue to stream. And once they're continuing to stream, why, why just buy with my local CBS station? I can also go to Pandora and get that same audience. And all of a sudden, Pandora has your enterprise buyer who isn't scared of high CPMs, who isn't scared, who loves the data that you can layer for them, and boom, you've got your sold. So um, I think the other side that's maybe not told is that shift for YouTube. Um, it's already happening uh, very, very quietly. Um, I would suspect that in the next year or so, uh, we'll see an e-marketer, you know, YouTube is the best thing ever kind of thing as, you know, a lot of enterprise um, advertisers start, start shifting or merging their budgets from uh, TV. Yeah, if, if memory serves, a few weeks back, I did see a similar type question, where are you going to spend your digital, uh, let's call it television dollars, 
uh, or digital video dollars. And number one was YouTube. I, YouTube, Netflix, and Hulu were three of the top five. And the first network, like ABC, NBC, was like uh, mm-hmm. pretty far down the list. So I think uh, 10 years ago when uh, Google TV or whatever, remember when Google yeah. tried selling ads on like direct TV, you can buy them. Yes, like, it was a massive flop. Right. And everyone was <laughs> like, this is changing the industry. Well, 10 years later, it seems like uh, we're finally getting there, but... Well, the the, thing, the sad part is is that the, the the reason why that failed is because the industry absolutely refused to go into a programmatic environment. They would I I actually uh, prior to being in pure digital, um, I was actually in an environment where I was selling remnant inventory on radio, uh, on a performance basis. So there's that's a whole story for a whole other time. I still have old bosses in that space, but um, and friends, but. Um, yeah, it's definitely it's an area where they're very very resistant to change. They they've wanted to TV has held on to that halo because it's such a massive massive revenue driver. Yeah. Um, it's just absolutely scary to turn things around. And so I think the industry has already made some positive shifts, anyways. So a lot of the buying of shows, etc. Um, you're seeing a lot of low budget stuff coming in anyway. And Netflix and and Hulu and Amazon are at the forefront of buying all that. So when your cost for production, what you have to monetize, is a lot lower, it allows you to get back in and be able to sell, you know, in a in a more uh, you know marketplace environment rather than we have this crazy CPM because we own the cust- we own the 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 watcher, and we all know that's BS at this point in time. Like that's just not true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't expect anything different in terms of. Um, you know, they own this high value, you know, for a very long time, they own the high value content and there was no incentive for them to move to a model where they didn't control every aspect of it. I mean, we saw the same thing in display, right? When programmatic display started Mm -hmm. and you couldn't buy anything except remnant. And then one by one, you know, the bigger brands realized no one's going to buy from just ESPN or just New York times. I mean, actually I'm probably naming brands that could still (laughs) direct sell, but most of the other brands, you know, 99.9% of the publishers just know he's going to buy from them anymore because they just expect them to be on programmatic. So it seems like that's now happening in kind of digital video. Um, one more uh, story. So Snapchat I brought up before um, in the piece that we we actually wrote a, uh, our own post about it, kind of the, the TLDR version was don't worry about doing Snapchat right, right now because you can get far more reach on uh, Instagram through oh, Facebook. Right. <laughs> uh, three times yeah. the audience and you know, with Instagram stories now as well, you even can kind of test out that format a bit. Uh, do you see a lot of demand for people who are starting to ask you about Snapchat and how that fits into their strategy? So definitely haven't seen it. We do. We have a number of fashion clients. Haven't seen that push yet. Um, but I, I definitely see that potential being on there first allows you to get reach. Doesn't allow you know if you're clutter if you're there, um, especially in fashion, you're top of mind. Um, it, it could be again. I, I expect like you, I expect CPMs to go down. But then again, look at LinkedIn. LinkedIn's never lower their CPC minimums or their CPMs, and you just look at it and go like, what the hell? But hey, and we're we're paying it not much, but we're paying a little bit. So yeah. you never know. Um, if they can somehow keep that halo around them and really execute on that, you never know. And they've probably got another year or so before they really need to generate any real kind of revenue uh, in terms of like their ad product. They're still in that phase where no one's expecting much in terms of like, you know, revenue. Right, exactly. And then they'll get they'll get their early adopters that will throw a budget at them anyway, despite the overpriced pricing. And so they'll they'll be fine. 
Great. Well, I appreciate you taking a big chunk of your time this Tuesday morning. If, if people want to find you, is there a place that they could uh, find you online? Yeah, you can find me on uh, my, my website, globalsempartners.com. Uh, occasionally, when I get out of my antisocial shell, you can find me on Twitter, at PPCGuru. Uh, yeah, that's, a, that's about it. Great. Well, now we know where to find you. Appreciate you coming on, and uh, we'll keep in touch. Definitely. Paul, been fun. All right. Take care. You too. Bye-bye.